Welcome to Art is Magic. Today's guest is a magician, mentalist, and amazing storyteller. We're going to be talking about his background in the military as a magician and how to come up with stories for your magic. Ladies and gentlemen, S. Patrick. S. Patrick, how's oh, it going? Good. How's it going? <laughs> good, good, good. We're here at your, um, your meeting here in the Pocono uh, Mountain Magic Club, right? Mm-hmm. I guess I want to start out with what got you into magic? A weird set of coincidences. <laughs> okay. Uh, I was a sophomore in high school, uh, just moved from Texas where I was a kid growing up um, back to New Jersey because my parents were from New Jersey. Uh, when my grandparents retired and moved out to Texas, they started getting older and they their health started failing. My dad, my brother, my sister, and myself moved to Texas to take care of them. When I was a kid, uh, when my grandparents passed away, basically we ended up moving back up to New Jersey. So I went to a brand new school and I had a, it was like a free period. I was like doing nothing with study hall, whatever, whatever you want to call it. I decided to go check out the library. Okay. Cause I'd never been to this library before. And this was the, the school I was at was like, I think it was like the fifth biggest school in the state. I mean, it was like ridiculous. So I go to the library and I'm just perusing books and I happen to come across 793.4, which is, you know, if you don't know the Dewey decimal system is the number for the magic books in the, in the library, at least at that time, I think they moved on okay. since then uh, with different systems, but uh, I just happened to pop, come across a magic book and I'm like, Oh, this is pretty cool. Let me check this out. Started opening the book, looking through it. And it was one of those, you know, this is the trick and this is how you do it. Kind of book, yeah. kind of teaching you how to do the how to do the tricks, which was pretty cool. So I was like, kind of interested in that. I was like, man, maybe I can do this. Maybe I can try this and see if you know, see if I could do it. I was kind of a shy kid, you know, especially when I was growing up in school. But I was like, well, maybe maybe this could help me overcome that a little bit. You know, try it out, see what happens. Perform for family and friends, you know, that kind of deal. Yeah. Um, and this is the part where it gets weird. So I go home that day from school and my sister meets me at the door and she tells me that she made a friend today. That friend lived on the, basically the other side of the wall of the apartment building that we were living in. All right. So yeah. our apartment here, a wall, and then the other apartment building on the other side. And and I said, well, that's cool. And she said, no, what else is really cool is that her dad is a professional magician. Oh, wow. <laughs> the same day this happened. So everything just kind of fell together. It fell together. So I ended up going over to meet this guy. His name was Larry Patillo. Um, he ended up becoming my mentor, if you can believe it. Wow. And we basically formed a bond uh, of magic that even lasts to, you know, to this day. Um, he's gotten out of magic and pursuing his his uh, music career now, but he still has a kind of a fondness for <laughs> back in the day. And it just sort of fell together that, you know, I was interested in magic. I just happened to come across these books in the library. I come home and find out that the guy on the other side of the wall from the apartment building where me was a professional magician, went over, talked to him, struck up a friendship. He became my mentor for the next two years. And that's where it all started. Okay. So let me ask you a question. What was it specifically, if you can remember, why you were attracted to magic in it itself? How old were you at that time? 
Uh, what was it, 16, 17? So you're 16, yeah. 17, you see a magic book, and what are you thinking? Like, you know, oh, this is, you know, it's entertaining, or did you have maybe... Well, I thought maybe I could, I could try some of it. Okay. You know, try to do it. I didn't know if I was going to be successful at it, so I kind of went and well, bothered my mom and my dad, and I was like, hey, let me show you this real quick and okay. see, if it, you know, see if it works. But when I met Larry, because he encouraged me to do it, to okay. run with it and be, you know, become successful. So then at it. why did you continue at it? Uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, it made me money. <laughs> that's, that's a very good reason. Yep. yep. I like that. Uh, also, I like the feeling. Remember, I was shy. Yeah. I was younger. And all of a sudden now I became the magic guy. Okay. So now I was the guy doing tricks to people who wouldn't talk to me if it was any other situation or circumstance, right? So now that I've got this talent or I've got this skill, yeah. you know, people are intrigued. And it's a skill that not everybody has. So you, you think in a way it kind of helps you. Work out my shyness? Yeah, yeah that as well. But also it helps you get ahead because you're that interesting guy. You know, right. you show up at work and it's, oh, it's that guy that does this. People treat you better. Yeah, 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 yeah. So when I was in the Marine Corps, I didn't have to pick up brass because magician and they just yep. had me do car tricks the entire time so and i understand that you were in the air force yeah so i was i was in the air force from 1988 to 1992 okay four years <laughs> this is crazy um two things as far as my air force career goes uh i lived on base housing not base housing it was the dorms yeah. Okay. Like, on like the, the barracks, right? Yeah. The, or, yeah. Okay. Yeah. But I mean, with the Air Force, it was. Oh, oh your hotel. Yeah. It, it was my hotel. hotel. It was a little bit more than the Marine Corps. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the nice thing about it was I was the only guy in the entire dormitory area, okay, that we lived in. Yeah. That was able to keep a pet in my room because I owned a dove. <laughs> okay. For my magic. Now, the people who were in charge of the housing, uh-huh. right? Okay. The yeah, barracks managers, right? All that, yeah. They all knew me because I performed at the Air Force talent shows and I performed at the NCO club uh, for their, their little gong show talent things yep. that, they, that they put on. Um, I was part of those. So those guys all knew me, right? And my first sergeant at the time, like, definitely knew me. He gave me written permission for me to have a dove in my room. In the I was the only person allowed to have an animal. That's crazy, because I was a magician and I performed at these these events. <laughs> <laughs> now that was the first thing. The second thing is is that I was when I was for when I got into the to Air Force, I go through your basic training, yep. right? Then after that, you go through your tech school. Yeah. Okay. I was right out of basic training. Okay. In my tech school class for the first two weeks. Yeah. Or even the first week, I think it might have been. Once again. I was allowed to leave the base. Now, when you're in tech school, you have to stay on the base. Okay. That, I mean, that's your thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. You have to stay on the base, at least for the first like three or four weeks, before, you know, before they loosen up the reins a little bit. I was able to go my first week there. I was able to leave the, the school, leave the, the Air Force base to travel into Denver, Colorado, because it was in, in right outside of Denver where the, the Air Force base was. Uh, I needed to go to the local magic shop <laughs> okay. to buy props 
for a show that I was going to be doing at the officers club because I had hooked up with while I was there first two weeks, I had hooked up with a group of magicians that were also in the, in the air force. Yeah. And they had a show coming up at the officers club and they invited me to perform with them. Now you have to imagine I don't have any of my stuff. Yeah. Right. So I got permission to go and buy some stuff so that I'd have 10 minutes to do. Right. I also basically ended up being allowed to go into the officer's club yeah. as a, an unstriped airman, <laughs> like <laughs> the lowest rank in the air force. E zero. <laughs> zero. E zero. Because I was a performer and I was part of this group that was going to put on this show for wow. the, the audience that was at the officer's club. So I got to basically, as a tech school student, I was yeah. nothing. I was a peon, right? I was able to leave the base, yeah. go buy magic props, come back, be a part of a show at the officer's club. Wow. Right? That's insane. Did, as, as did it go well? Student. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I did my little spiel, and it was Yeah. You know, I mean, I had been performing for two or three years prior to entering the Air Force. So, yeah, yeah. So you, know, you were already— I was— yeah, fine, but it was just a weird, you know, and you know, and then I go back to the dorms where all the other tech school students are, and we're hanging out, and they're like, "Dude, where were you?" I was like, "I was at the officers' club." <laughs> they were like, "No." <laughs> so yeah, it was interesting concept. When you and you know this, yeah, when you are when you have a talent, when you're a magician, when you have this extra thing that nobody else can do, it opens doors. It does. It it opens doors, and it opens doors that otherwise would be closed to to anybody else, really. <laughs> yeah, because I remember going into the Marine Corps thinking, like, is that it? Am I done with magic? Or, like, you know, who knows? And I get there, and I end up doing it more than when I was not oh, like, yeah. in the Marine Corps. It's like, because you think of, like, the military and how strict it is and how, you know, um, regimented everything is and you kind of think a magician's going to go in there and just kind of like you're not going to be wanted or you know it's like oh you know you don't fit the perfect image of a yeah. marine in my case and you get there and it's like they they love you you know yeah absolutely they absolutely love you i remember many times going to first sergeants sergeant majors um when i got to my base i they brought me up to the command deck and we had a whole they gave me a challenge coin i performed for the sergeant major nice. the uh lieutenant colonel like all that. I was scared out of my mind, but <laughs> no, that's interesting. I'm glad you got to do that. So I guess I want to go into, you get out of the military, right? Where does it go from there for you when it came to magic? Well, I've been continuing on uh, doing magic every year that I was in the military because yeah. I was in the Air Force talent competitions and yeah. the other shows and so forth. Okay. And that was an every year thing, you know? Okay. So you're um, doing that every year. So, for- so, yeah. So they knew me. I mean, they okay. get to the point where I was the magic guy. Um, Good. When those talent competitions came up, I was able to go temporary duty to all these different, different awesome. bases and yeah. perform in these shows, which was really cool. Um, and very few people get that opportunity. I had the, the performing experience. So when I got out of the military and I basically ended up, I was down in Mississippi. I was on the Gulf Coast of Mississippi, like right where the Gulf of Mexico is, like right there on the beach. That's where um, the Keesler Air Force Base was, right, like right there. It was exactly at that time where they had just started casino gambling movement. Yeah. And 
they were they had uh, dockside um, ships in the Gulf of Mexico, basically just basically parked like right there, you know. And what you would do is you would go out onto the ship and you would be able to gamble because back then you wouldn't be able to gamble on dry land because it was it was they didn't hadn't legalized it yet. But you could go offshore, just basically into the Gulf of Mexico onto yeah. the ship and you could gamble there. Um, now, prior to that, while I was still in the in the Air Force, um, they had a casino ship. Okay. Uh, that went out into the Gulf of Mexico. It actually went out. It was two and a half hours out into the Gulf and two and a half hours back. Yeah. And you would gamble on the ship and you would eat and you would do all of the you know stuff that you would do. And luckily, uh, I was with the Magic Club at that time. And one of the main guys in the Magic Club was the main performer, got a gig as a main performer on the ship. Okay. So I was able to go out and perform with him doing shows on this casino ship, which was awesome. That's great. While I was still in the Air Force, mind you. That's crazy. It was like a part-time job, you know, which was cool. That was one of the cool things about the Air Force is that they give you a little bit more leniency. So what was your your MOS in the Air Force? I was a diet therapist. I worked in basically a hospital kitchen. Okay. um, Making hospital meals, dietary requirements for patients, and, you know, taking care of them that way. Good. That's great. Um, in the meantime, you're just going out and yeah, I doing would, these I would, shows. and Yeah, basically, I would work in the morning. And it was one of those things where you work in the hospital at 6 a.m. You do, like, breakfast and lunch. Yeah. So you're working, like, 6 a.m. to 3, you know. And then you'd leave and you'd go home, right? Well, my home was the dorms. But then at 3 o'clock or 4 o'clock in the afternoon, if I was doing a show, I would leave, go across the road to the beach. <laughs> yeah. Because the ship was, yeah. like, right there. Do the ship two and a half hours out, two and a half hours back, and we would do a close-up show on the way out, and a st- basically a stage show on the way back in. Wow! And it was awesome. And then I get back at eleven o'clock at night, and I go to bed and wake up in the morning and do the whole thing all over. <laughs> That's crazy. So I, I guess you know I've known you for a long time, right? I've known you since I was like ten years old. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, which is twelve years ago. So. The one thing that I really, you know, that sticks out with your performance style is your ability amongst your great magic, but your, your ability to tell stories. Yeah. And I think one of the most, my favorite thing that I've ever seen you do was that bones thing. You know what yeah. I'm talking about? Yep, yep, yep. I don't, but I, I remember the story, but I remembered being like encaptivated by it, you know, first of all. Mm-hmm how are you so good at stories and I'm not? <laughs> and, <laughs> and second, what makes a good story? You could be a good storyteller if, if you, if you want to be. Okay. Yeah. Um, but it's a process. Okay. And it's a lot of, it's a lot of trial and error and see what works and see what doesn't work. Um, I've always been fascinated with the concept of, of why in magic. Now let me explain. Basically, if you go out and you just perform a trick, okay, that's just a trick. It's a puzzle. It's something that the spectator may think about even trying to figure out, which you don't want, okay? In order, and this is the um, basically directly from the Art of Astonishment books, uh, Richard Weber, you want to turn that puzzle, you want to turn that trick 
into a moment of astonishment, okay? So you have to elevate it. Now, what's the best way to elevate a trick? It's to wrap a reason behind it, okay? Okay. It's to wrap something around it that tells the story of why you're doing what you're doing. If you do something and there's no reason to do it, why are you doing it? If you want to be interesting, if you want to show somebody something that's really interesting, okay, you wrap a story around it. Give it some meaning. Give it, oh, this is a deck of cards. No, this isn't just a deck of cards. This is a deck of cards that was given to me by my great-grandmother 20-something years ago because she was a magician's assistant for a long time, and she taught me all about magic. Okay, now— Which is a total lie, by the way, but it's a story. I understand. Okay, <laughs> that's where I want to go with this next. Being a magician, I guess there's sort of, and I like getting different people's opinions on it. People's opinions change between person and person. What is the ethics of lying to somebody as a magician? Mm -hmm. I've heard some people say that there's a, an understanding that when they show up and the magician shows up, they are going to lie to you. That's part of the show. Mm -hmm. But that lie isn't mischievous. And there's some people saying that you should not lie at all. You should tell the truth which I don't agree with. I think you can kind of need a little bit of... But so what is the ethics of when you're coming up with stories, things that aren't true? Okay, here's how I balance it. Okay, I could stand up here and tell you a 100% total BS story, and I'd be okay with it. Okay. But that's me. Of course. Of course. <laughs> okay, but I don't do that. What I do is when I tell a story... I interpret or I interject some real life situation that I've had experienced, or I tell a little bit about me personally, my experiences in life, or I tell something about maybe uh, my wife or my grandson, which I tell a lot of stories now about my grandson because he's awesome. When you put a little bit of truth into your story, it does two things. Okay. First of all, it makes the entire story more believable. Okay. It elevates your story. So the truth stuff is up here, and all of the lies are down here, but the truth stuff kind of elevates your lies to about the middle of the road. So it makes the whole thing plausible. Okay. Okay. And yes, I agree with the fact that when you're, by the definition of being a magician, you know, you're fooling people. You're sure. tricking people. Yeah. Okay. So they, they do understand that going in. But, see... The key is there has to be a balance, right? So a little bit of lie, right, and a little bit of truth together in an entertaining fashion. That's the story. That's why I tell stories. I like to interject the fact that, you know, you know I had my grandson with me and we went on this journey and we found out this so-and-so-and-so or my great-grandmother was a magician's assistant for many years, so on and so on and so on. Or I found this little box while uh, at, a, at a toy show in Trenton, New Jersey, so on and so on. Okay. <laughs> you know, that's the key. So some of it is the truth. Some of it is lies. It's mixed together. It's all entertaining. I mean, I look at magic like any other art, right? You have, you know, you have movies, you have books and i, I kind of see that a similarity to magic is you had to get if you read the last page of book where the big ending is right you're not going to care magic kind of does the same thing if i show you the end of the trick before i show you the beginning 
you're not going to care. Right. You have to tie it in together, right? Books do it using words, movies using words and visuals. I think magic, in order to be effective, you have to use both. You have to use visual and I think words like oh, absolutely. Said, story, tie them in deeper and kind of get something more of a, an emotional reaction from them. That's the key. And rather than just another trick, it actually means something rather than magic without emotion equals trick. And that's not what you want. Uh, absolutely. Because I notice you kind of go more towards um, mentalism for your stuff, right? When I'm doing mentalism, yes. I just, I, I like mentalism, so that's what I tend to lean towards. Okay. <laughs> so what is, your, what is your favorite kind of magic then? Uh, really? My favorite kind of magic is bizarre. Bizarre, really? Yeah. You know, the storytelling, the spooky stuff, the Halloween-ish type stuff. Um, the storytelling stuff. You can clearly see you're good at it. So Absolutely. <laughs> you can tell you love it. But mentalism is part of, of bizarre. Yeah, I, yeah so, you can tie it in really easy. Absolutely. Uh, and that's really kind of where the storytelling aspect came from. I wanted to add something special to the magic that I was already doing. And I said, well, if I'm going to create something around this little prop, because I wasn't using it for much else, uh, what, why don't I develop a kind of a story around it and make give it some meaning like we talked about before? And then uh, I started going to Connecticut uh, and they have a, a bizarre magicians convention up there, which I've been to for the last 12 years. Yeah. You're always, going. I think I always hear you, you know, I, this yeah, is going up absolutely. And- I love the And those guys up there really kind of helped me with a lot of the storytelling aspects and how to tell a good story and, and all, and the, you know, kind of the right things to say and the wrong things to say and how to approach it and so forth. And that's really uh, what allowed me to kind of grow as far as a storyteller goes to get to the point where, where I am. Speaking about the power of stories, you know, gypsy thread, right? Yeah. You, know, you generally take, you know, take the thread, rip it off and it comes, you've seen Eugene Berger's uh, gypsy thread, right? Yeah. Well, yes. Yeah. Live. Like, it's, it's, that's, <laughs> I wish I got to say that. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's the same, same trick, but it feels completely different because he's doing it, mm-hmm. you know? Like, that's the power that the stories have. Change something that you've done a million times and make it seem like it's something completely new. Or even to somebody that's seen it before, it, it's, it could seem fresh or new or a new idea. If you want to see something really cool, and I don't know if there's even any video of it out uh, now, but if, you've, <laughs> if you're familiar with, the, uh, with the, what a Glorpy handkerchief is, no. Okay. I have no clue what that is. All right. A Glorpy handkerchief is, is a handkerchief. Okay. Like a little pocket handkerchief. You can show front and back. You lay it down. You fold up the handkerchief into, yeah. into quarters, fold like little triangles, fold it into the middle, and then smooth out the handkerchief like this. And then all of a sudden, the handkerchief, middle of the handkerchief starts poking up. Like there's a, like a little ghost in the middle of the handkerchief. Okay. Yeah. Like you're manifesting the spirit. Okay. It's a $7.50 trick. Okay. Okay. Affordable. Yeah. Okay. That's sold in every magic shop. Okay. It's a beginner magic trick. Okay. I I bought one when I first started in magic. Thought it was really cool. Have you ever seen Eugene Berger perform with that $7.50 trick? You'd swear it's something different. It's an amazing, amazing thing. 
because the story that it tells and the reason why he has this handkerchief and why there's a ghost inside of it and all of those really cool things that Eugene put into the stuff that Eugene did. Absolutely amazing. We're talking about stories and we're talking about storytellers. I mean, he is one of the best. He, in he the, really is. You know, so, like, I've seen a few things from him and it's like, wow. Luckily, I was able to to get to know him a little bit. Yeah, I wish I had the chance to meet him. <laughs> I, so when it comes to building a show, right? This is going to be a general question I'm going to ask. When it comes to building a show, what do you look for in terms of effects in it? Now, I'm, I, I know it's people are different when it comes to different age. A general show, what type of stuff are you looking for effects-wise? Uh, okay, what type of a show, though? Because... I'm talking, you know, age or adult show, 18 the mentalism show, magic show, magic. Okay. The way that I structured my magic show is the way that I structure all my magic shows. The props may be different. Okay. Okay. But the way that I structure a magic show is the same way you'd structure a play. Three act play. You've got act one, you've got act two, and you've got act three. All right. Now, act one, three tricks. Act two, Three tricks. Act three, three tricks. Now, the tricks in act one, routine together. They all have a common theme. The tricks in act two, okay, they all have a common theme. And the same thing for three, okay? Then at the end, there's like a tenth trick because you've got three, six, nine, right? Yeah. Then there's a tenth trick that can be like an encore trick if, if you want to do that, okay? But the structure is this. The first three tricks, okay? The first trick, you need to do something quick and flashy to establish yourself as a, as, as a magician. Yeah. Okay. The second trick is a little bit more skill-based. Okay. And then the third trick is a funny trick. Something goofy. Okay. If that's your character. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, then the middle is you start to get a little bit more into the storytelling. You start to get a little bit more involved. You start to get the back and forth. You start to use assistance more, you know, people from the audience. Um, and then the third act is your closers. Okay. Three closers that build strong, stronger, and strongest. Okay. Okay. So your three strongest pieces in at the end, but those three pieces have to routine together. They have to make sense. Otherwise you're just doing a trick and you're throwing it in a basket. You're doing a trick and throwing it in a basket. There's no semblance of, of continuity there you have to structure your show like like a play right the first act is character development backstory you learn who is who and what's what and what the setting is and all this stuff the second act is the meat and the potatoes okay the conflict the back and forth and the third is your resolution that's when you tie everything up at the end right so your show should be structured Loosely, there's some give and take there. You know, obviously, it's not going to be 100 percent live performance that way all yeah. the time. But your first three routines establish you as a magician. That's your character. The second part of the show establishes that you know what you're talking about. But it also that's the part where you're back and forth with the audience. That's your interaction. That's your meat and potatoes. And then the the finale. That's where you tie everything up. That's your strong, stronger, and strongest effects. Okay. 
And then your encore at the end if you do. So I, I assume, I think you told me before, but you build shows, right? So you have a show for, yeah. say, kids. Like if I'm doing it this range or this age range, I'm doing yep. this, you know. If I'm doing older, I'm doing this. And you said you have like ABC show. Like you have it, oh, yeah. you have it set up, you know, <laughs> or you could go anywhere and do a show. Yep. How long does that take to get it down to that where you're happy with something? Now, I'm taking one, right? So you're taking one show. How long would you estimate from start I, you could say finish. I don't think there's ever really a finish to you to feel happy to perform it in front of somebody. Um, when, when are you ready to, to do that show? Well, that's a good question because uh, you're right. You're never a hundred percent ever finished. You're never a hundred percent ready. Plus when are you brave enough <laughs> to, that I'm always constantly <laughs> taking things out and putting new things in, you know? Um, so, I mean, honestly, my process is kind of long and arduous. <laughs> really? Um, and that's why I belong to three or four different magic organizations. Okay. Right. Because when we were meeting live, yeah, I went to Scranton. I went to New Jersey. I went to my club. I went to Allentown. I went to, you know, these different clubs. And I would perform these routines to get all of the feedback from all of these people that saw me perform these particular routines. I knew what I wanted and I knew the routine. You know, all right, I'm going to put this here and put this here and put that in the structure. Yeah. That show. So once I got a whole nine routine show put together, then I wanted to go out and perform the pieces. So I'd hit all the magic clubs and I would use them as practice, you know, and they would give me feedback. Sometimes it was constructive and sometimes it wasn't. Um, but I take what they'd say and I'd listen to it and I think about it and figure out what worked and what didn't and rework it and rework it. Um, I would perform it for my wife. I would perform it for my son. I would perform it for everybody who would, you know, would watch it in my circle, you know, uh, and they would give me feedback as well, you know? So it got to the point where if I could do the routine successfully for them. Yeah. And then I would go out to all the different magic clubs and perform it successfully for them then I think at that time, it would be time enough to basically unleash it on the audience. <laughs> okay. Which sometime it would be a six to a nine month process. That's long, but I think that's needed though. Cause you know, yeah. most, most of the work magicians do isn't always in, in the background. It's in the details of everything, right? If you watch a magic show, mm-hmm. a good magic show, you can look at it and go say, he didn't do anything the entire time. He just kind of walked around and, yeah. uh, magic started to happen but people don't realize how long even people hire magicians and they look at the you know prices or you know whatever Uh they look and they go okay why for some guy to come to this birthday party or some guy to come to my corporate event it takes a long time to get something down i am still to this day working on my double lift (laughs) that i started (laughs) forever ago you know it, it takes an insane amount of time and practice in knowing okay i'm placing the prop it here because it's going to look better here and it also is blocking this i'm going to perform this next because it's going to follow this next effect Uh it'll get them in the right state for that you're not going to do a spooky effect and follow it the happy and then know they're spooky and happy to stick to a theme you know um that all plays into the experience so it's a long process um has there ever been anything that specifically you went to go try and you're like, wow, that did not work. Not really. No, no. Okay. And part of that is because I'm a very selective, 
selective shopper. Like when I think of putting a new effect into my show, uh, basically it's got to go through kind of an audition process. (laughs) Okay. I got to see if it's going to fit. I got to think about how I would make it fit. I mean, if it was something like if I'm going to go to uh, buy something, okay, um, and I don't buy everything. Some of the things I do are my own, you know, or handmade, you know, whatnot. But if I'm going to go buy something like from a magic shop and I go visit, or not even from a magic shop, but there's a lot of great people out there that build uh, magic props that yeah. aren't shops. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Um, especially in the bizarre community. I have to see if it's something that would totally fit my persona, my character, and my show before I would even think about buying the thing. So what is your persona, your character? I am, uh, my bizarre character is basically the storyteller. You know, I share stories with uh, my audiences about things that I've experienced in my travels. Okay. You know, things that I've, I've done when I've gone to China, things that I've, I've experienced when I traveled to um, Austria, things that I've experienced when I traveled to, you know, wherever. Right. Uh, and I'll put those stories together into a bizarre presentation. And that's basically my bizarre character. I'm not too heavy into the bizarre, but. So could you describe uh, what I was talking about before that, that bones. Um, sure. Effect? Could you describe that? What that um, is? In a nutshell, basically. Yeah. In, an, um, in a nutshell, not in detail. What, yeah. Because basically what it is, is I have a, basically a case. And inside that case is a, is a canvas bag. And I unwrap the canvas bag and there's a selection of bones uh, on, on this bag. There's about, I think there's about 12 or so bones. And I tell the story about the devil, basically, or yeah. one of the devils who brings uh, the plague upon the land. And um, what happens is, is that this character, basically it's a natural part of life, just, you know, every how many years we're going to get some type of plague or disease or, yeah. you know, I hate to bring up the COVID, the COVID. thing, but, you know, <laughs> it's a, too, but soon, too soon. It happens, yeah. you know, um, you know, and then you had the swine flu and yep. before that you had the, you know, all this, it's going to happen. And down the road, I hate to say it, but it's going to happen again. Absolutely. All right. Yeah. But the, the concept of the story is uh, there was a young man in India who met this uh, devil, per se, and the devil has a weakness for gambling. And the game that he likes to play is called Nim, or the Merry and Bad Game, which the game in a nutshell is you can pick up bones off the table, either one, two, or three uh, bones. And then the, the other person picks up bones off the table, and you go back and forth. And the person who is forced to pick up the last bone off the table is the loser of the game. So the whole object is to try to force your opponent to pick up the last bone. Yeah. Okay. Well, the story progresses and the, the Indian uh, boy and this devil character are playing this game back and forth, but throughout the process of the game, young Indian tricks the devil to lose into losing the game by a, a really cool twist in the story. Yeah. Uh, and then what ends up happening is that the devil, because he was bested by this young boy, basically stops the disease and leaves and yeah. isn't seen again for another hundred years. Yeah. I mean, when you present it, it's, it's so good, mm-hmm. you know, like 
it's kind of hard to put into words, but it's it's so well put together, right? And it just everything fits. The can the the bag fits. The story fits. You know what's the, even the bones you're using fits like. And you're telling the story with this other person up there, and it's it's just it's great. Well, I try to be as real as possible. Yeah, especially with the props. The props add a whole element to the you know whole Absolutely. big element to the story. Yeah, <clears throat> when you were talking before about stories being right, and magic being uh, spoken and visual, well, the storytelling is the spoken part of it, and the props are the visual part of it. Yeah. Okay. And what you do with the props when I do the bone thing, okay. The bones are in a bag. The bag is tied by a string. They're real bones. They're not human bones. They're animal bones. But, <laughs> yeah, it's not real bones, right? And, not real right. human bones. Right? And, yeah. and the dice that you use at the beginning of the game to roll to see who goes first is actually carved out of a bone, which becomes an integral part of the story. All of that is true. I got those bone dice from... A uh, person who was selling them on Am- on uh, eBay. I mean, that that's seems, you know. <laughs> I just bought bone dice in the mail, honey. It's gonna be you can. <laughs> you can buy anything. It you, shows you up. Can buy here. a casket <laughs> off of eBay. It's just package. It's my, yeah. my bone dice. Exactly. <laughs> now I got the bones from Odes. <laughs> yeah, which is okay. People. And Odes is just a nutcase. He's, <laughs> but he's also a bizarre performer yeah. who has also helped me create. He's, he is the, amazing. You know, um, but hats off to him. But he actually had uh, a bunch of, of uh, animal bones um, that he was using, he used to use for a, a different, totally different story. Uh, and he wasn't using them anymore. So he kind of he kind of handed them over to me. And I yeah. was able to. Chicken bones. Wink. Actually, cow bones. Oh, okay, cow bones. Different parts of the yeah, <laughs> um, and and uh, it just it just adds so much to the story. It does when yeah. you can bring these authentic props out and show people as you're telling the story, you're playing with these props. Yeah, you know that's all, that's all part of it, um, visual as well as auditory. And you do both very well. You know, like when you really put down and you work on something, it's it's generally going to be generally going to be really good. Oh um, yeah, I go through a lot of scripts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because like, even right now, so we both uh, belong to the Slocum Hall and Magic Society in Scranton, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. and we are we're working on an effect as a club. And as uh, as Patrick here, pretty much came up with the baseline of the story, and you know it's very interesting. And if it when it comes out, you know everyone will see what <laughs> it is. But just know that he's the one that did the story for it. So I guess getting off topic a little bit, I want to ask you a question. Yeah. You may not have an answer to it. Um, the answer is blue. How did you know? Yeah. <laughs> I'm a mentalist. Come on. <laughs> oh, that's right. If you could do anything, like any effect in the world, not focusing about method, what would, you, what, what would it be? Just doing, like if it was real magic, what would you do? Hmm. Wow. Um, honestly, I don't know. Um, make something appear in thin air, maybe. That'd be Stuff. amazing. With that. that would be just, yeah. <laughs> just, I mean, really, make something appear out of thin air would be totally cool. Um, so many of the things that I do are tied to methodology. So it's hard. So it's hard to come up with something that. Now, the thing I find funny about that is when you ask magicians, they don't know. Yeah. You ask regular people, they know. Why do you think that is? 
because we regular people don't have our thought process. Okay. We think in terms of methodology. As magicians, we think in terms of how does that work and why does that work? Where where an audience, if they're if they're entertained the right way, will look at it as, wow, that's pretty cool. I like that. That's amazing. You know, if they're entertained the right way, they're not thinking of how does that work. Okay, that's that's our thought process. That's why when you become a magician, you lose that magic sense of wonder that you had when you were not a magician. And that's you know, that's a whole nother thing too. Because oh, absolutely. <laughs> so I mean, I asked that question and magicians immediately their brain goes to, okay, well, I already do that. I already do that. Yeah. I already do that. Um, what would be cool? What can't I, I guess make something appear, you know, or make something disappear or uh -huh. conjure a million dollars or whatever it is. But it's hard for them to come up with an answer because they're so stuck in methodology. Mm -hmm. I already know how to do this. I already know how to do this. I already know how to do this. It's talk to somebody else and it just pops right in. And like you said before, when you become a magician, you lose kind of that magic, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, is watching mat like on TV now or whatever on YouTube is watching magic enjoyable? Is it, um, or do you maybe see it in a different way than a normal uh, person would? It is enjoyable for for a couple of reasons. Uh, and first thing you have to do is you have to you have to really try to split your mind into two thought processes. Okay. Okay. When you're watching a magic effect, I look at it this way. Okay. I know seventy five percent. Yeah. Of the magic that's out there, how it's done, or at least how some of it, it is done. Okay. 25%, I don't know. When I'm looking at a magic effect, especially on shows like Penn and Teller and so forth, and I see them on the, I'm like, okay, that's how that's done. That's how that's done. That's how that's done. I see that. Right. But then the other side of the brain, right? Uh, left side, right side. Yeah. Type brain. Um, my other side of my brain is thinking, wow, I like how he was able to do this particular move or say this particular thing to misdirect the audience. Yeah. He did this or said this, and that allowed the story to make sense. The entertainment aspect of it. It's a different the appreciation. The pretty aspect yeah. of it, right? So my, my left brain is thinking the analytical stuff. Yeah. My right brain is think which is weird because it's flip flopped. But my right brain yeah. is thinking the aesthetics. Oh, that looked pretty. I like how he did that. I like that move. That was really neat. That flourish looked really cool. The trick actually worked well. The audience seemed to like it a lot, which is really cool. So you have to have two different thought processes going on in your head as a magician at the same time when you're watching magic. Okay. Because first you have to see the methodology, you have to look at the, the, the performance aspect of it, uh, the, the trick and the how to, right? That's this side of the brain. And then on this side of the brain, you're looking at, wow, that was a really cool trick. I like the colors. I like the aspect. I like the method. I like the story. I liked its effect on the audience. You know, the audience was awesome with it. That was really cool. And you have to have those two thought processes going on in your head at the same time. That's how I look at. I think you have a, a new appreciation because as a magician, you know what's possible and what's not possible. Not most of the time, mm -hmm. right? You know, you know, somebody takes, okay, I'm going to make something disappear. Oh, that's impossible. Well, it's not if I use this right. and I do this and <laughs> I, I put this here. You know, you can make the impossible possible, but 
I think it's even stronger when a magician gets fooled by something. Oh, yeah. Because then it just like, I have no clue what just happened. And I think the last time I got that was when you <laughs> at the uh, club meeting did that one effect. It was like a card trick or something, but it had the, you had the card with the, um, the number on it or something. I only remember it changing. That's all. I just, you put it in the glass, boom, it changed. Oh, the one where I dropped it into the glass. Yeah. That's the oh. one. Yeah. <laughs> that was the one. Cause I saw that and I was like, what just happened? Cause I, I'm like, that is not possible. Nice. You, know what this, you know what the weird part about that was? It's probably like $4. <laughs> no, no, it's just not cheap. It's not cheap. Okay. It's not expensive either. But the funny part about that is that I thought the methodology on that sucked. It was a terrible methodology. I got it. I was like, this isn't going to fool anybody. The only reason I got that trick, because when I watched it on the video, the demo video on the, on the internet, when I was going to yeah. buy something, I needed something that I could do on zoom. Yeah. Because, you know, we're doing a lot more zoom stuff now. And I do yeah. that the Tuesday evening magic show with the guys in Jersey and whatnot. Yeah. Um, I needed more stuff that I could do on zoom without, having to rely on a spectator or you know, yeah. somebody. So I thought, oh, that's kind of pretty. You take a card, you hold up a glass. The card's got a, a number and a, and a suit on it. You drop the card into the glass, and all of a sudden it changes into a different number and a different suit. I was like, really? That is really cool. But I know exactly how the method works because I watched the guy on the video. And the guy on the video wasn't really too good with it. <laughs> okay, yeah. But I was like, Wow. That method sucks, <laughs> but I bought it because I needed something that I could perform on Zoom, and it looked pretty, you know. But then when I got it, I started thinking about it, and I was like, "Oh, let me make this work." And maybe if I put my hand here, or move this, or maybe do the the glass this way, or put the card in this way, or do it, you know, do it differently. It it worked better. Uh, so I thought the trick was like, when I was going to show it to you guys at the club, I thought you were going to be like, wow, that's cute. But that's exactly how that works. Yeah. I didn't expect that reaction. Just to recap, you, you have this, you know, this picture and, and you drop it in a glass and it changes, right? Mm -hmm. I thought there was a completely other different methodology. And then you handed me the card yeah. and I was able to hold it. I'm like, I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, that's, that's, um, that's really good. That, you know, but it's, it's weird how things like that I don't expect to work. Once you know how it works, blue, you, you feel like it's away. yeah, you yeah. feel like it's it's too simple. But no, I want to thank you for uh, letting me come up and uh, yeah. get this together. Thank you very much, and catch up with you again soon. Cool. When you're performing as a magician, you have your audience's attention for. 45 minutes, an hour, they're there to see you perform. They bought the ticket with your name on it, so make them feel like there's something else out there that we can't explain. Even if they don't believe it, they'll feel it. It's our job as entertainers, not just magicians, but entertainers, to entertain them, and that softens the blow. We're not trying to just fool them. We're fooling them in an entertaining way. How? By telling them stories, by sharing some of ourselves with the audience, by interacting with the audience, by putting ourselves out there so that the audience trusts us enough to allow us to fool them.